Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Cure, cannabis used for research and education. The medical industry is steadfastly looking to help millions of patients that suffer from injuries related to repetitive motion, sports, trauma, and many other orthopedic injuries, as well as skin disorders, mental disorders, cancer, and osteoporosis, to name only a few of the other underlying conditions that billions suffer from each day. On average in this country, we have 10,000 people turning 65 every day. With the cost of pharmaceutical medicines increasing, patients deserve natural alternatives that are not only more cost-effective, but also safer for them and society. Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing a therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you. Or check out their website at www.curemich.com. Cure, cannabis used for research and education. On the Verge is also brought to you by Green Scene. Green Scene is a family-owned company recognized as the Sizzle Award winner for outdoor living in Williamson County. We design and construct areas to blend with the natural landscape of your yard. That can include outdoor spaces, gazebos, fire pits, outdoor kitchens, and yes, putting greens. We understand the importance of your home. That's why we never settle for anything but the best. Green Scene also provides multiple teams with professional landscape maintenance, irrigation, and outdoor lighting. Welcome to On The Verge. Today's special guest is joining me for the second time, but if you listen to enough podcasts, you know that I'm with this gentleman frequently and often as we do our Elevated podcast off of our best-selling book, Elevated, and we're getting ready to come out with our second book, Excavated, which should be coming out very soon. Make it make a warm round of applause for my main man, Drew Maddox. <laughs> Drew, how are you today, buddy? I'm doing amazingly well, uh, Virgil. I, I, this is an honor. Right? What do you, you told me that I'm. This is number four, the fourth person yep. um, that you've had on your show twice now. Yep. And I have to tell you, with the first uh, time that we connected and sat in this seat, and we did on the verge the first time. You know, little did we know, now retrospectively looking back to 2019 when we were doing this for the first time, little did we know the journey and the fun ride we were going to get to be on no kidding. with, um, you know, just my brother from another mother. So yeah. I appreciate that, man. This is this is fun. Well, just to get people up to speed, you know, when we when we wrote the, the book Elevated, neither of us had anything intending on outcome other than we just wanted to put something out that might be beneficial to one person knowing that we might sell one book right yeah <laughs> you know but it, and it would probably be our you know my mother or somebody yeah. like that but to be able to put something out that will last yeah you know that had something good in it because there's not enough good in the world and we wanted to do our part for it to become a bestseller for five weeks 
I think that like, I know it caught me off guard, yes. but I, I'm I'm pretty confident that it caught you off guard as well. Yeah. And the overwhelming support that we had uh, was was kind of eye opening. Yeah. So for us to have moved from essentially not knowing each other to meeting at a Christmas party to me, uh, you know, let's do a book. Now we're doing. Then we start doing the podcast with the book, and that turns into what you. Yeah, I'll never forget the day you sent me number one coaching podcast. Yeah. In the world, in the world, that that was like um, okay. <laughs> so that's two really bizarre blessings yeah. for us, and it kind of falls into my how I like to do things, which yeah. is I don't try to, I'm not trying to do something to gain accolades. I'm trying to put something out that's mm-hmm. good, good for people to chew on, yeah. and, and whether I'm touching one or one billion, that's that's right. we're, we're kind of like minded. Yeah. We're, we're coaches, yeah, and. We just like to – people are struggling in a lot of different ways. Sometimes they're struggling with their sports. Sometimes they're struggling with their life, education, family, et cetera, et cetera. It's a – life's full of struggle. But everybody's looking for that, that beacon of light and to just be that little light that people can look through on a cloudy, on a cloudy day for 45 minutes to listen to a word that, that might help them navigate the day. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. No, it, it, it's been amazing. And – you know, I, I think even before you get to the reciprocal blessing of how that impacts other people, mm-hmm. I think I have to bring it back to how it's blessed me in that, you know, just the intersection of our stories at Sperry's at a Christmas party that just as it would be lined up, we sat next to each other. That led to me joining your podcast, which led to the book, like just the self-development journey that that, that took me on, you know, like always dreamed about writing a book, but never really knew, did I really have something to offer, contribute to people that would be uh, something that somebody would care about? Did mm-hmm. I really have something to offer? I mean, you know, like I, I never thought of myself that way. And then through our relationship, just the encouragement of, hey, let's do this together. Now I have an accountability partner mm-hmm. uh, in that, that I'm responsible to to get my entry to. But not only that, just the positive encouragement that you live your life with and what you do every day is you coach up people that coach me up to get me to a level that hey maybe I do have something that you know that somebody needs mm-hmm. out there from from our story so that's the first things first is just the way that that blessed me and I could go on and on about you know just the self-discipline to sitting down at the keyboard and not really knowing what I was going to write that particular day so you know just the the segment on creativity and yeah. and and just kind of thinking through meditating through uh, praying about like what am I really going to write about as it relates to perseverance or mm-hmm. resiliency or grit and what does that look like? Um, and I, and so that that in itself was special. Just that that accountability and responsibility piece of the self self discipline it taught me. Yeah. But the second thing that it really showed me was all of us have a responsibility to utilize everything that we have for the betterment of everybody around us all the time. That never stops. And so how dare me to question, did I really have something to offer as a contribution to the world in terms of impact when that's exactly what we're trying to coach people up in their mindset and in their hearts, that they absolutely have something to offer the world and they have something unique and they have a specific role and a specific part to play in the bigger story. 
And you've got to step out of your comfort because that step one out of that comfort zone is the hardest step to take. And then once you do it, you'll be blown away at the way that you'll bless others, but it also will will be a filling up of your blessing cup as well. Yeah, 100%. I'm interested to hear your take on this. Um, What was the feeling writing excavated versus the feeling of writing elevated? How did you feel like you evolved as a writer? And how did like the the whole process of elevated uh, help or hurt yeah. the, the the writing and the, the vision of excavated? Yeah. And I, I want to hear your, your thought on that too, because yeah. I, I think, I know we've shared this offline, but one, I think, um, you know, just in terms of the the craft itself, like just becoming an author and really maturing in the way you put words together, sentences together, build context as you tell a story, definitely evolved. And I think it's like any skill, um, you you can get better at a skill mm-hmm. and it's never too late to continue in your improvement process. And so with book one, when I go back and read elevate, I read some of my entries and even the way I put together stories or words, mm-hmm. um, the, the reader wouldn't know it, but I know it now that I've written, uh, excavated, you know, just how I evolved as an author. Yeah. So that's first things first. I think second thing is in the interesting thing in all of it was when we set out to start excavated, we didn't know this little effect of the time period that we were going to be writing in. Correct. And so I think that's the other thing that people need to understand is contextually, where are you as a human being in your life process? But then what also is going on in the world around you? Well, last year in 2020, when we wrote excavated, which will come out this year, there was you know, obviously COVID was a, was a big story, you know, the political unrest, uh, the social injustice. I mean, our world was really dealing with a lot of different things. And so when we set out to write excavated, we said we wanted to take words that people thought as once kind of negative connotation and spin them that it may actually be the biggest blessing in your life because it could set you up for the next positive blessing. You just got to keep moving through it, keep moving towards it. Um, and so we didn't know, like contextually the world around us was going to be going on, you know, even what I was dealing with and I, I, I don't mind sharing, you know, like loss of income, significant loss of income. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, a significant loss of my ministry. I mean, I, I camps, you know, we, we get to serve over a thousand kids a summer. Uh, that's a big part of my heartbeat, you know, yeah. use the game of basketball to connect to the hearts and minds of kids. That was gone, you know, so that was out of there. I'm, I'm a relational person. I'm a communal person. You know, we were isolated, um, you know, really dealing with a lot of this stuff. And you and I were journaling and writing a book called Excavated of how we dealt with negative things that had impacted us, but set us up for a bigger blessing. Well, guess what? While we were writing it, it was also helping me deal with and heal um, and, and have a positive mindset with what I was walking through currently in that moment in my life. And so it was just this layer upon layer of stacking of blessing of, of how it hit at the exact right time. So when, Mm -hmm. when our readers get it this year in 2021, there's a lot of pain, a lot of hurt, a lot of wounding that you and I write about in excavated, but also during that time in that like 
time in my life as a 44-year-old, I was still walking through a lot of pain, struggle, and adversity. So all of that was working together and and through that experience with you um, of revisiting old stories that I hadn't even thought about, you know, mm-hmm. it almost was like therapy and counseling to myself. Yeah. All of that just wrapped up together became this big gift uh, of an enormous blessing in my life. And I hope and pray um, that it has a, an impact on whoever picks up and, and reads those pages. Yeah, I, I agree that the, the process was so unique. Now, I really believe without a doubt that the podcast helped my writing because yeah. we, it allowed us Great to go point. deeper. Like, because the just for those of you that, that haven't bought the book Elevated, is the whole premise of our story is that we we pick fifty words. Drew writes a page on what the word means to him. I write a page on what the word means to me, and then we leave space in the book for you to write what the word means to you. So our book becomes your book, so that you get not only two coaches' perspectives, but you get to put your own perspective in it. And then this the book has its own life to you. So when we ended up talking more about it so each page turns into a 45 minute podcast i personally realized how even though in, a, in one page you're trying to limit your words because we're trying to make it a a quick impact read yeah not like a not like a dan brown you know da vinci code 700 pager <laughs> you know we're just trying to make it it could just read a, a word a day yeah and I, like I'm, I'm perfectly good with one word a day mm-hmm. making an impact on you and, but I realized that, man, the way we talk about the words in our podcast helped me refine my writing. Uh, no, I, I just felt like I did the best that I could every time that I, yeah. I get down. I don't really, I don't really try to judge myself. That's right. But I, it felt better to me. Yeah. And I think because we talked about the yep. words so much. Such a great point. That I'm like, well, I want to say this a little bit cleaner, a little bit better yeah. uh, in this one page of information. So I would think that the the podcast was the biggest, like how the it flowed out of my fingers onto the keypad mm. better. Uh, but really, just knowing that I'm doing something with a like minded person who cares about not only making yourself better, yeah, but helping others elevate themselves. That's right. And then obviously with excavated, just thinking of the word excavated versus elevated, mm-hmm. we had to dig deeper. Mm-hmm. And, and in a time frame where everybody's having to dig deeper yeah. for a lot of different reasons, it just seemed poignant. It just seemed like the perfect name of a, of a, yeah. <laughs> of a book f- coming off of our first one yes. uh, that it would probably resonate with a lot of people. Yeah. And that's, you know, at the end of the day, we could touch people with our podcast. We touch people with yeah. the book. But at the end of the day, we're just coaches. Yeah. And that leads me to really one of the things that, one of the main reason why I brought you on is that, you know, as coaches, you know, both of us get told a lot about what we do and how we do it. Yeah. But we never stop learning. Mm. And you had the opportunity to yeah. do a deep dive into some leadership training mm. that I, I think is important for everybody to hear. And, and I want you to share it because you, you got a chance to be around some of the most impactful people mm. in the world. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, so tell us a little bit about where you went, yeah, and how that that long weekend uh, really touched your heart and your mind. Yeah, well, I, it, you you and I share in this that 
um, if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe you never arrive at a destination. I, I, you know, I don't care if you're John Wooden uh, when he was living, Mike Krzyzewski, even Nick Saban. I think about the great CEOs of our time. I would hope that those guys want to continue to evolve, to adapt, to change, to innovate, and to continue to grow, not only as a human being, but also in their craft as well. Mm-hmm. And so back to what you're saying, I'm always, I'm, I'm hungry to get better. Like I always just, I want to figure out ways to communicate better, to connect better, mm-hmm. to relate better, uh, to grow in my knowledge base, you know? And, um, and so I had this unique opportunity. Yeah. I got invited to go to Entree Leadership. Uh, the Entree Leadership Summit put on by uh, Ramsey Solutions. Mm-hmm. It was in Dallas, Texas. And then, you know, they had missed the year before, obviously, because of COVID. And mm-hmm. so uh, this year, they put a lot of resources behind it and had an all star lineup of thought leaders, you know, leadership gurus. Um, some of my favorite authors, you know, were, were all on the three day lineup. Yeah. And I think the crown jewel of them all was um they had george w bush on the agenda as well Hmm. and so you know they had all of these guys that i've read all of their books but i haven't really done a a leadership um you know summit uh any sort of series or attended an event since I really got out of corporate America. Now I've been, I've been to basketball related events, you know, and heard, you know, here's the intricacies of motion offense. And this is, you know, late game situations and more X and O type things, some culture stuff, but nothing like just straight professional development, leadership enhancement and cultural focus. And that's what I was able to do. And that's a passion of mine. You know, that's a passion of mine. It's a passion of yours. Equally like you want to see, you know, the golf swing of Joey that comes through the door today. You love studying what makes great people great. What makes organizations great. How does that apply to me? What can I take away? Apply to what I'm doing every day here at Innsworth. And how does that have an effect? And so I was able to do that for three days and, my wife was able to share in that too. So that was kind of special that sure. she was sitting right there with me. And it was fun watching and kind of being able to have those discussions with her who knows me better than anybody in the world. Sure. And she was like, Drew, it's like you're, it's Christmas morning and you're 12 years old again. And we're walking into this room. And that's how I felt. Like I could not wait for the next day wow. to hear the next speaker and to hear you know what they were going to do that was going to have an impact on me. Interesting. So when you think of W... You know, an interesting, an interesting presidency. You know, probably the first two years of his presidency, maybe nobody was more popular ever, and the last six years, not so much. Yeah. Uh, but he he showed a sign to you that uh, he's a little bit deeper than the person that yeah. we saw on TV. Talk to us about President Bush. Blown away. Really, it was one of the greatest presentations slash speeches slash interviews my ears have ever heard. Wow. Um, I was impacted in so many ways. He's 74 years old and I'll just start here. I didn't know. And I I have to tell you, I'm not like a historian. I've not read his bio. Mm -hmm. You know, I I know a little bit to be dangerous about his life, but not really like, you know, a deep dive of who he is. Um, Like for instance, he's an incredible uh, portrait painter. Oh, wow. And that developed late in his life, um, just like in the last decade, um, d- 
did not know that. Um, wow. He has, um, you know, uh, he has businesses uh, that that help support people, like um, uh, a, some sort of lumber business, like a tree farm kind of thing. And um, you know, obviously loves his grandkids. And he just gave you a picture into the human being of who he is. He was the only president ever that uh, had his father alive during his presidency. Didn't know that. Now, the interesting thing about his particular father was he had held the seat as well (laughs) that that he held. And so he talked about just the unique relationship between father and son. Wow. And yes, they had this shared experience called the presidency, right? So that that helps in connection. But he just offered up little words of wisdom of what a father at the right moment with the right message at the right time, what that can do to a son. Mm-hmm. And he would, he, I mean, tears would fill his eyes as he talked about, about his dad. And wow. that was really special to hear, you know, two of the most powerful men ever, you know, on the planet, mm-hmm. but yet still talking about the power of a father-son relationship. And that, that, that was deeply impactful to me. Um, and then I think the third thing to me um, that really, really stood out with him was uh, the ability to take an experience that he had had in his life, you know, we, really we're talking about eight years of his life, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's happened, his, his presidency ended in 2009. So however many years ago that is, 12 years ago. But to take this time in his life and to share with people in a simple and articulate way with deep, profound wisdom tied to storytelling, mm-hmm. what this experience meant what he learned from it, what others learned from it, and what we can today learn from it. It just was a beautiful way to articulate through storytelling hmm. um, impact. Did he talk much about nine eleven and the and the moments that he? That has to be the hallmark, yeah, uh, of his presidency. How he handled that moment was. Well, it was, it was a time in which we haven't seen probably since either Eisenhower or Truman, for yeah, that matter. Yeah. You know, and in a most unexpected way, in a new way. Yeah. Uh, what would, how, well, tell me a story yeah. that, he, that he shared about 9-11 that maybe isn't, that was something that you'd never heard before. Yeah, uh, so I, I think that was, you know, the, the tip of the spear of his time on the stage was the 25 minutes that he specifically talked about that day. Um, And I'll build to the story at the end of this, but he started uh, out reading in a classroom in in, uh, the state of Florida. He gets word. Obviously, they rush him out. They had to get him to uh, the, the, the nearest, safest place he could get to, which was Shreveport, Louisiana. So he spent the morning up until lunch until they started to see that the actual event of the planes had, had stopped. Now they, they were still gathering information and didn't know what was next. Right. I mean, now you're just, you're, 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 you're just spinning, trying to figure out what to do next. Then they get to a, they get some sort of a threat. Like it gets to be a high danger situation. So they get him on a plane and get him to a, a bunker in the middle of Nebraska and so as he's sitting there getting all of his intelligence, he has all of his top people with him in this underground, in this bunker in the state of Nebraska. Um, you know, as the day goes on, his people started to tell him, and, and he knew intuitively he needed to address the American people. 
you know, and wanted to come out with a message from the president of the United States to the American people. And, and they were so fearful of his life. They said, yeah, well, we have all the, the, the capabilities, satellites, media set up. You'll do it from right here in this bunker. And he said, absolutely not. I am not giving an address to the American people on the defense underground in the state of Nebraska. No offense, Nebraska. I'm going to give this address from the offensive position of the most powerful place on the planet from the Oval Office. And they were like, Mr. President, you can't do that. There's, there's, there's been so many threats. And there's so much danger going back to Washington, D.C. Obviously, a plane had hit the side of the Pentagon that, you know, one went down in Pennsylvania that, you know, supposedly was headed towards, towards that direction. Yeah. And, and he said, no, I, I, I do not care. I'm going to give this address from the Oval Office. He, he said it was the only time uh, in his presidency who, he overrode the, the Secret Service. Wow. And so he said, fire up Air Force One. We're going back to D.C., and I'm going to give this address from my desk at, in the Oval Office. And that's what they did. So he went back and you know and gave this address. Uh, I, I don't even know what his words were. I don't think it mattered in that moment, just the symbolicness of saying, I'm not scared. You shouldn't be scared. We're the most powerful force that could that has ever been created. We're going to take care of you. Um, there's nothing to be scared about, and and he did it from a position of offense, you know, from the Oval Office. I just thought that was pretty incredible. Yeah, interesting. Did he talk about um, throwing out the first pitch in the World Series at all? He did not. But I know that that left a mark on you. You, yeah. you had told me about that story. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. You know. The lead, I mean, there's a couple of YouTube specials on it, and there's just that. There's one that's like seven minutes long, and he talks about how they didn't want him to go out there, and he went out onto the mound, and he was so nervous that he he could barely he could barely handle it. Mm. And he's wearing a bulletproof vest, and uh, <clears throat> I can't imagine that moment. Yeah. Like literally, because I played baseball too, and I was a pitcher, so when but I mean, he wrote. He walked out there like John Wayne, you know. And then he throws a perfect strike. Wow! Wearing a bulletproof vest, he said it was so tight that he wasn't even quite sure he was going to be able to get it to home plate. Yeah. And he throws a perfect strike. Unbelievable. And the place goes bananas. <clears throat> I'll never forget that day. No, <clears throat> that was unbelievable. How does somebody, you know, I, I and it, it made me think, you know, just what we can do to build a narrative in a different direction because, Mm -hmm. you know, he was president from 2001 to 2009. Right. I mean, so, you know, what we're talking about early on, you had just quoted his approval rating was as high in terms of popularity uh, with with the American people. And then by the end of his time, you know, just um, how that had changed, you know, to a point where, you know, there's Saturday Night Live skits and, you know, all those kind of things, making fun of the way he uses words and makes up words. I, you know, just he, he became a parody. And I, I don't understand how that happens um, because here's this human being who's waking up doing the very best he can do. He led us through one of the most, you know, one of the hardest times you could ever be a leader of a of a oh, nation. Yeah. yeah. And by the end of it, it was completely viewed as opposite of what those early days were in his presidency. It's just it's just bizarre to me. Yeah, no kidding. Another person that you did get a chance to be around is somebody I know that you really like, and that's John Maxwell. Oh yeah. 
<clears throat> when you talk about the all of his books, which I've read about half of them, and they're all so spectacular. Um, what did John Maxwell bring to the table, and what what do you what were your takeaways from the the time that you had with with uh, John? Yeah, it, yeah, I was blessed to be in the green room with <clears throat> John and and got to visit with him, and he heard I was a high school basketball coach, and it really connected with him because uh, John Wooden was one of his mentors, and I didn't realize how close you know, they really were. Mm. Um, and so he told the story, uh, in one of his, you know, teachings that particular day, one of the principles was be unforgettable, uh, as it relates to like, um, connecting with people and how do you, how do you become unforgettable to people? And he told the story of how he met John Wooden and, uh, he got a chance to, to have breakfast with John Wooden. He really wanted to ask John Wooden to be his mentor, but he knew, I mean, John Wooden has hundreds of people wanting him to be his mentor, thousands sure. of people wanting him. So what was he going to do to be unforgettable in the eyes of John Wooden? He said, I, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to read all six of John Wooden's books at the time he'd written six. And I'm just going to start making notes of questions that I want to know more information about. And I'm going to bring my pad to our breakfast. I have 90 minutes with him from 8 to 9.30 at John Wooden's favorite diner. And I'm just going to start asking him questions about, you know, things that I want to know more about. So get to the breakfast, John Wooden's, you know, like go ahead and order John Maxwell. So they order breakfast. And when the food comes, John Maxwell just pushes his food to the side because he goes, I I have 90 minutes with John Wooden. I'm not wasting my time eating. Like I'm going to spend my time with him. And so he pulls out his pad this legal pad of questions on every line. And so John Wooden said, yeah, uh, John Maxwell, what do you, what do you have on your pad there? He said, well, coach, these are some questions I really want to want to ask you about that. After reading your book, I want to know more about what your thoughts are, what your heart was here. You know, how, how would you explain this a little bit better? And um, so they, they, they asked the first question or John Maxwell asked the first question to coach Wooden. They made it 90 minutes on one question. So then John Wooden looks back at John Maxwell and says, well, how many questions? I see that you have a whole page of questions. He flipped over page one, page two, page three, page four. He had five full pages of questions that he wanted to ask John Wooden. So John Wooden looks at him and it made such an impression on him. He said, well, what are you doing the rest of the day, John Maxwell? And he, and he said, well, coach, I'm, I came to L.A. just to see you. I like I guess I'll go back to the hotel or whatever. He said, no, you, my, my condominium is right around the corner. Do you, do you want to come and start asking me some more of those questions? And so uh, he spent the entire day with John Wooden. They made it through page one. And then they set up uh, all these different meetings thereafter because it left such an impression on coach Wooden. He felt so honored that John Maxwell would spend that much time preparing to meet him. It paid such a respect. John Wooden and him struck up a unique friendship. Obviously he mentored him to the point where John Wooden died at age 99. And the night before he died, uh, he wrote the uh, forward. I forget the name of the book, but a forward um, in one of John Maxwell's books the, the the night before he died. Wow! Really incredible story. That is awesome. Yeah, it was Kinda really like, neat. Like I was, I saw something on social media, uh, by that was given to me by a uh, great friend of mine, Doctor Brett McCabe. He says, if you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be? John Wooden, for me. Yeah. There's something about the way yeah. he carried himself, the with way you. he led. Um, 
I mean, I think it would be really cool. There's plenty of great golfers that I wouldn't mind talking mm-hmm. with and business people. And, you know, I have some very favorite rock artists that I wouldn't mind interviewing in my lifetime. But I think the creme de la creme for me is John Wood. Yeah. And I think I, that that's such a – that would make me want to sit down and do the exact same thing to John mm-hmm. Maxwell. You know? Yeah. Because, like, not only would you get John Wooden's wisdom, but you'd get John Maxwell's wisdom Correct. on top of it. Yeah. And all the things that he learned while chasing that kind of wisdom right. almost doubles down on the greatness. Yeah. That, that would be awesome. Yeah. I, when we sat down, and obviously he has people pulling at him, you know, a thousand times a day. I think he said he had 39,000 uh, people that have come through his leadership academies all over the world. You know, they're in countries all over the place. Yeah. And, but yet when I sit down with him and we started to, we were eating like some noodles. I don't even know what we, whatever it was, grilled chicken and noodles and a salad or whatever. The whole time I sat with him for, I was there probably 30 minutes, just him and I, he didn't take a bite of his food. He, it was like, I was the only person on the planet and he was so engaged and so invested in our time it made wow. me feel honored and respected wow. by this guy that that I honored and respected. You know, it yeah. just it had this this boomerang blessing that was just uh, uh, flowing between us, and it just was a reminder of the way with intentionality you can love people yeah. and you can honor people. You can stop what you're doing in the busyness of the day and whatever you feel like is going on that is pulling you in a direction. You can stop and you can make somebody feel very very important. Just through investment and through intentional, you know, relationship, through discussion, interaction, conversation, whatever it was. And he certainly did that to me that day. It just lets you know a couple of things. No matter how big somebody gets, they're still a human. That's right. And most, not all, but most people are just like anybody else. They love to help. And when they recognize that somebody's there for them, they generally give like you would have never guessed that's right you know every time i'm around the the country music stars that we have here in nashville they love to just be known as a regular person yeah they act like a regular person and when you talk to them like a regular person yes you get really awesome (laughs) stories and insight out of them and that's one of the things that i always try to be when i'm around somebody that i know their time is being pulled because of who they are I try to be quick to the point, yeah. But make my point unforgettable. Like, yeah. like, like I don't want to just ask some kind of fan question, or I want to ask something like, "This guy's dug in a little bit right. on me," and that's interesting. And that, like to me, the thing that I'll never forget was when I did my my on the verge with Vince Gill. Mm-hmm. You know, to have somebody like Vince Gill agree to come on to your podcast, when like, why am I? Why is he? Why is this kid? <laughs> want me? You know, so I did some, I did a little backstory yeah. of stuff on him, and then like, I didn't want to talk. I mean, I wanted to hear him talk about his music, but I wanted him to know that I had him on because of all that he does to give back to kids in Love junior it. golf in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yes, I want to talk about your musical career, right? But everybody knows about your musical career. I want people to know that you're great, way more than your country music. Mm-hmm. You're a great golfer, but not only that, but you've built. Of a junior golf tour, you've you had this gigantic event that raised millions of dollars for junior golf in Tennessee. You got the Vince, the Vinnie Links over in East Nashville. I mean, he is a massive 
role model mm-hmm. for golf in this town. Yes. Not to mention one more Grammys than anybody's ever won. Mm. You know, a nice little sidebar. <laughs> so at minute 40, we start talking about music. You know, at minute 40. So I'm hearing stories about golf mm. and playing with Johnny Miller and playing with Bob wow. Walcott and playing with this person and that person. And, you know, and then we got into talking about the Eagles and how, you know, all of those things. He could not have been any more giving. Wow. And I know that that's who he is, too. Yeah. But I really feel like people love to be around people that understand that they're not the guy who plays guitar yeah. and sings a song only. Man, you, you, went in, you, started, yeah. you wanted to know more about me, not me as an artist. Yeah. Like the person that people see on the album cover, you, you went past that. Yeah. And that to me is really important. Yeah. And I think that's what Maxwell demonstrated with, yeah. with Coach Wooden and then gave it right back to you. Yes, that's right. How beautiful is that? And, and that's <clears> what I, I know we share in this because we've talked about our philosophy of, of coaching. That's ultimately what we're trying to do in the lives of the kids we serve too is, you know, first I want them to know that I love the human being first. The student athlete is second to mm-hmm. me. And I want them to understand that basketball, or in your case, golf, is something that they do. It's not who they are. And we want to be remembered more for what we give than what we do. And just getting them to understand that mindset, it all comes back to serving the human being first. And even that reminder of of you with Vince Gill, yeah. that blessed him. Yeah. Because you know how many times a day he walks into the grocery store, he walks into a restaurant, and he's Vince Gill, the music guy. Yep. And you started talking about Vince Gill, the human being, and I bet he came alive getting to talk about those other aspects that he's very passionate about. He never gets to really share with the world about. That's right. Because even, even when they do, they still want to hear about his newest record. Right. You know? Yeah, that's great about the, the, the golf links and, and, the, and this. But, but tell me about the new song. Or, yeah, that's yeah. right. So, like, to me, that, that matters. Yeah. Because I think people are afraid to approach the superstars right. or the great leaders because they're afraid that they'll just get blown off. But they're humans, too. They were, they had, were insecure at one point yeah. in their life. There isn't anybody that came out of the womb you know, Bruce Lee kicking everybody's butt. <laughs> everybody's learned. Yeah. Everybody's had to struggle. And everybody needs to know that, you know, Vince Gill's won more Grammys than anybody's ever won. Not every day in Vince Gill's life has been great. Yeah. And to let him talk about struggles and perseverance. You're like, going, oh, wow. Yeah. And, and just letting people know that, you know, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, you know, Kobe Bryant, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, they look so amazing when they're doing their craft. Mm-hmm. But as soon as they step off that field, they're just another human being. That's right. And they're they're blessed in many ways, but they're also imperfect like everybody yeah. else. And it's always nice to highlight people's imperfections in a positive way. You know, you're not perfect. But you've overcome your imperfections to reach this level of greatness. Mm. How did you, what were your processes that you implemented to overcome your weaknesses? Because we all have them. That's right. And when you start to hear somebody's game plan, 
how, of how they address their weaknesses, you can start implementing that instantly in yeah, your life. That's right. And most people can't wait to share that stuff because nobody asks them. They just want to hear about all the good stuff. That's right. And well, I, that's, not what, that's not what we do. Well, and I, I love that our next book, Excavated, which comes out this summer, it yeah. is exactly that. What you just described. I mean, we're taking words, uh, and you and I are sharing you know, stories and ideas and thought around fear shame, guilt, all these, you know, these words that you would think, oh my gosh, that's something I've tried to hide from the world or I've tried to hide from even people that care about me the most. I didn't really want to, you know, uh, ever be vulnerable enough to share that I really, you know, experienced some deep level of guilt in something or, or some shame, or I was really scared in that time in my life, or I was really afraid you know, how did I deal with that? What did I do to overcome that? What were those things? Who did I rely on? What person helped bring me up out of that, um, that gave me courage to pursue whatever it was in my life. So what you're just describing is exactly what the, the pretense and the idea for the book was and the vision of the book, which was let's share some things that we've tried to, you know, hide deep down in our spirit and in our souls and in our heart and not really share it with anybody mm-hmm. and, and invite people into that and say, no, 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 we are all 100% human and we all deal with these struggles. I don't care who you are. You deal with those struggles. And this is some ideas of ways that, you know, could maybe help you deal with those things. 100%, which this is, this happened to me today. Um, I was, I was, uh, I love TEDx talks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so good, such an effective mode of of media to connect with the audience. Yeah. So th- this gentleman came on. It was TEDx Nashville. Okay. And this gentleman came on. He was an, an addict, and his the thesis of his statement was why all CEOs should act like addicts. And he talks about going into um, AA <clears throat> and the twelve step program, and he came out with uh, these three things. Like the day one of of going to AA. Okay. Practice rigorous authenticity. Hmm. Surrender the outcome. Do uncomfortable work. Ooh. If you do that every day, you won't fall back into the habits of alcoholism and drug addiction. Wow. So that's powerful. So he he leaves there and goes to a halfway house. In that halfway house, they say, you can stay here for five days, but if you don't have a job at the fifth day, we're kicking you out. So he goes to do this job, uh, and he goes to, uh, this is, dates it a little bit, Sam Goody's, which is a, which was a CD, is a music store. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Not Goody's uh, like uh, out of Knoxville Clothing Store. Yeah. Like, no, the, Sam Goody's that we used to get CDs at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, he, so he goes there, and... Before he goes into his interview, he's so nervous. He calls his sponsor, Kenny okay. A, and says, "You know, they're, I, I haven't worked, haven't had a job in three years, and they're going to ask me like, hey, what have you been doing for yeah. the last three years if they that you haven't been working?'" And he goes, "You're going to tell them the truth." He goes, "Yeah, I can't tell them the truth. I can't tell them that I'm a, I've lost everything and I'm a raging alcoholic and drug addict and I'm seeking help." And he goes, "That's exactly what you're going to huh. do." <laughs> and that you're going to go in and you're going to you're going to practice being rigorously authentic. Who are you? You're going to surrender the outcome. If you don't get the job because you tell the truth, that's not a job for you in the first place. That's right. And do uncomfortable work. Mm. Be vulnerable and just be open. Like, hey, 
I've struggled, but I've got a hold of my life and I'm on the right path. I know that I've, I've made some, but I really, I'm looking for a great start to the next chapter of my life. Mm. And he goes, I do all of those things. I'm so scared. And the guy looks at him and says, when can, when can you start? Wow. And he says, when you do the work, when you do those three things, that's what it takes to be a great CEO. But it's also what you have to do to not be, to not fall prey to addiction, mm. not fall prey to the, you know, another thing that we talked about a lot is you know, don't drink too much from the cup of success. Mm-hmm. You know, the great CEOs are great for a reason, but they, they, they try not to take too big of a gulp out of mm-hmm. that big cup of success that yep. they've had because it's real intoxicating. Yeah. And to do that uncomfortable work of just yeah. staying humble. And I thought that was really powerful That's for me awesome. today. That is awesome. To, to it's powerful to me today. <laughs> little 14, it was a 14-minute speech. Wow. I'll have to look that up. It was really good. But to me, like, that yeah. is... That is what we do. Yeah. You know, and so to hear John Maxwell say stuff like that, that's really interesting. Yeah. Another one was uh, Pat Lencioni, you know, that wrote the Ideal Team Player, Five Dysfunctions mm-hmm. of Team. So he did a, a great, great discussion uh, around his new book called The Motive. And it's his first fable-oriented kind mm-hmm. of storytell of driving through some ideas and thoughts, you know, that he wanted to leave you with. And uh, John Gordon does that so beautifully uh-huh. in his books yeah, where well, he, he uses a story and then, you know, ties a lesson on the back end of it. And and I thought the one thing, what you're describing about the CEOs and the leader type is he, he talked about the difference between a reward-centered leader and a responsibility-centered leader. And it's what you and I have discussed a lot, but back to your uh, the thought of, uh, drinking from that cup of success and how that you get addicted to that and all that comes with that. That's being reward centered, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's not only like your paycheck and your bank account and growth financially. That could be people's approval or the acceptance of people or status or power or whatever it is that falls in the reward bucket. But he said those CEOs that can shift their mindset and operate from the paradigm of responsibility centered and how that starts to change the way you serve. He goes, I want to take servant leader out of the equation if you're a leader you're a servant that should be an absolute because that's a responsibility yeah i just thought that was a beautiful thing just on the just to just to add on to what you just described uh as you tied you know addiction to being a ceo uh, the reward centered versus responsibility driven ceo types um you know, and it's back to what we've talked about. Do you focus on fulfillment or achievement? Do you focus on eulogy or resume, you know, process or result? I mean, we could go on and on yeah. about all of these things, but it's amazing when you start to focus on those things of that it it just is never enough. It can never fill your, your heart up enough, and you're going to constantly be craving and seeking and trying to figure out a way even if you have to cut corners yeah. to do it, um, to make sure that you're filling up that reward side of your of your ledger. Yeah, so true, so true. And, and one of the fascinating things when you look at the list of the people that you yep. had speaking there, they had all kinds. And one of the the per, another person that I really want to hear about because I'm fascinated by him, uh, he talks about extreme ownership heavily. His name is Jocko Willing, <laughs> uh, and he's become a force of leadership mm-hmm. uh, in a similar mode and uh, obviously a Navy SEALs version of what we do. Yeah. You know, he talks to people 
in a leadership way, and of course he leads very differently than we lead. Uh, his is a lot more dire in its cause than ours. Um, but when, when you uh, think about the time that you share with Jocko Willink, outside of the sheer force of his being. Yeah, because that, that alone, you're just awestruck by. Is that right? Just his presence. The way he uses his words, obviously his physical stature, you know what his resume is, right, Mm -hmm. coming into the room. But if he were to walk through this door right now into this room, you would stand up just in respect because you know you're dealing with somebody that is just different. Yeah, Um, They think different. They live different. Their discipline's different. um, And that's why you just respect him so much. Outside of obviously being shredded, is he a big man? Yeah, he's big. Yeah, he's about he's probably six two or three. I mean, he's almost eye to eye with me, mm-hmm. but then obviously, you know, just <clears throat> jacked. Yeah. <laughs> what were some of the stories that he shared on leadership and ownership? Obviously, his big deal is extreme ownership. Yeah, yeah, and, and, ownership. and he and he he gave a whole presentation around extreme ownership and what does that mean, right? So he used obviously his time in Iraq and he wove his leadership lessons of leading through a crisis, mm-hmm. how you lead men in a situation of crisis. You know, what does that look like? But then he went down a whole different discussion of um, the dichotomy of leadership, which I thought was interesting mm. and the balance between different forces that you would think are opposite of each other, but how they're very integral and very tied together. So for instance, one was, you know, obviously you said extreme ownership, which was the title of his New York Times bestselling book. Yeah. Um, and that's what he's known for is, you know, even the CEO, everything rolls up to him, even if it's several layers down the hierarchical chain it still is his responsibility at some level. Either he didn't train up the next level good enough or their communication systems aren't good enough or whatever it is. So he he said extreme ownership, but also decentralized command. So it's almost like this hands-off approach, but also being very tightly gripped approach that you got to give people our empowerment to go do their job and give them freedom within, you know, what their job description is. And yes, there's ownership tied to it, but you're also trusting them that they know what's best in that moment with their given area of expertise to, to execute what is needed in, in that moment in time. And I thought that was interesting because you think of extreme ownership, like tight grip, hold on, you know, everything going on. And he said, no, you also got to have the other side of the coin. You got to have decentralized command and an empowerment in your in your culture as well i thought that was pretty cool interesting uh, he talked about um uh plan but don't over plan courageous but cautious calm but not robotic uh there's a difference between talking and communication i thought that was interesting and then he said the, the I, I love this because this is something that i talk about often with our players that extreme levels of discipline create uh the ultimate level of freedom and what he meant by that was what we try to do is the the more disciplined you are in your approach, the more freedom that you'll you'll feel expressed on the other end. So if you can sell out to habits, uh, the characteristics that it takes um, 
you know, to, to ultimately tie all together into being a successful organization and, and, and you sell out to that, that you can experience freedom within that. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that was just, um, you know, something. And, and then ultimately he said the most important characteristics of a leader is humility. He said, without humility, a leader doesn't have a chance because there's too much ego. And when there's too much ego, you've edged God out of the equation, edging God out. You've edged God out of the equation. And at this point, you you don't have a chance because it's all about you. Wow. That's interesting because in some ways, he seems to be in a position where it is all about him. Yeah. You know, he does a great job of spinning it, spinning to the truth. Because from the outside, it looks like he is the the man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And in many ways he is, but how he how he trains people to lead under him, he takes very seriously. And like to me, of all the things that I see since I've been in the workforce is how little training is being done anymore on any job. Yeah. I mean, it's just get thrown to the wolves. You just you you become you get a job at Chick Fil A, and they're not really they're not going to step you through an extended period of time of how to ring up somebody. You go to a restaurant, and the waiter they are not being trained properly. You go to a dis I mean, like a, a Neiman Marcus, or you know, it looks like they're they're more worried about money than they are taking care of people right it's all about the it's all about the bottom line and you can really get the feeling of a bottom line centered company yep. versus a culture or a foundational layered company mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's what i see missing a lot yeah. is people aren't being trained by the leaders yeah. anymore there's like trial by fire yeah yeah. And there's other, so obviously there's a there's some benefit to trial by fire. But at the end of the day, everybody's first day on the job is trial by fire. Yeah. A lot of what can be prevented falls on the leader. Right. You know? That's right. And that's not happening mm-hmm. at the rate that it should, in my in my opinion. So I, I think that Jocko provides a layer of accountability to leaders if they follow him. Yeah. Because I when I read his book, I never thought of taking responsibility for something that had absolutely nothing to do with me. Right. The way he described it. Right. Right. So I mean, I've always been taking, I'll take responsibility for the things that I do, but I've never really thought about the impact of taking ownership over something that somebody else does. If you just had 1% to involvement with that person. Mm-hmm. Like if you see that something happened that you could have changed, if you had just said this or coached up that, <clears throat> And how he, like, how serious he takes his ownership. I was like, man. So I started to, and I read that book right before I became the coach here at Hensworth. Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I was like, it all comes, it all is going to fall on me. Like, yeah. it's not going to fall on the kids. Yeah. You know, because <clears throat> I know they're going to try. Everybody wants to win. Yeah. You know, so <clears throat> when we do win, it's to their credit. And when they don't win, I didn't prepare us well enough. That's right. And, you know, I take a, that's a big that's a big burden. But at the end of the day, it's not really a burden because it's not life or death. It's just we get a chance to use a game yeah. to teach us life. That's right. You know, and there's never a match that I'm not prepared for. But there's plenty of matches that I never thought that this moment would come 
like right now in front of yeah. my and I didn't prepare them for this moment. Yeah. And <clears throat> that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And obviously life provides us with a variable list that's impossible to cover at all. Yeah. But having extreme ownership allows you to take that moment as your responsibility and that's not going to happen again. It's okay to make a mistake. Yeah. We just try not to make them again. Yeah. And that's what he's really good at. Yeah. And when and passing on is like, yeah, well, I mean, I've made mistakes that have well, probably for him have gotten people killed. Yeah. It probably feels terrible. I, I can't imagine that kind of pain, but to know how he handles the mistake and, and it happening again on yeah. Jocko's watch. Yeah. I'll make a mistake, but yeah. it ain't happening twice. Yeah. And that's yeah. a that's a powerful message, yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, two other things with him, <clears throat> you know, I love his whole usage of the word good. I'm, I'm I'm sure most people have heard that you know podcast slash YouTube clip. Oh yeah, where he talks about negative things that happen, and he'll say good. You know, now you have a chance to get better. Like it, there's always a lesson to be learned. You flip the mindset and you utilize it for positive force in your life. So mm-hmm. he went on a whole thing about good, which I, I love that clip yeah. that, that I've memorized pretty much every word to. I think the second thing was um, the the animal, the buffalo, when a storm is coming across like the Midwest, uh, instead of running away from the storm, so the storm is coming Every animal that exists runs away from the storm, keeps running ahead of it. The buffalo slash bison is the only animal that runs back into the storm. Really? And so he he did a whole discussion on fight, flight, or freeze, and how you're trying to shrink the margin in battle and combat. So when conflict or adversity comes, you run back towards it because obviously you're you're trying to shrink the margin. You're trying to encounter it quicker, faster, get through oh, it uh, wow. in a much more urgent way than if you delay it or you run away from it or you don't confront it. You never, one, get better from it, right? I mean, struggle, adversity create opportunities for you to get better. But two, you don't get through it in an <clears> urgent <throat> manner either. So it delays. It just keeps going on and lingers on instead of just confronting it head on, dealing with it, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever happens in that moment, you're going to deal with it as a response, but you can deal with it much faster if you run back into the storm like the buffalo. Interesting. I thought that was pretty cool, too. Yeah. Kobe Bryant talks a lot about talk, talked a lot about that. Okay. You know, like being um, conflict is like addressing it immediately, not putting it on the back burner. Yeah. Like address it now. Let's get it over with because that makes us better. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get it out in the open. That vulnerability piece is so scary for everybody, and it just goes to show, even at the highest level of anything, and Kobe was as high as yeah. they can possibly get, yeah. that it, conflict and difficulties and struggle arise on a daily basis. And those who run into the storm, yeah, which is a very interesting uh, visual, um, those are the ones that are amazing. And when you listen to like the Hall of Fame speech that his wife gave about yeah. him, that was really powerful. Mm. But I mean, can you think about, could you think of any other way that you'd like to be remembered than the way she that is incredible? I'm, I tip my cap. Well, she did that with composure and poise. Like, Correct. I'm like, wow. Yes. Now I'm sure she practiced up. I mean, no, that's what champions do. They prepare. Right. But the way that he lived his life left such a mark on their family. We could only dream to have somebody speak that way about us. You know, I I agree. And, you know, Kobe, I think, you know, as we 
as he's gone on and passed on, his legacy, I think, has just become so much more uh, it's stronger. I, I can't think of the right word, but uh, it, like his lessons are, are becoming much more visual and they're articulated on social media. So I posted one today mm-hmm. and you used to think of him like, Obviously, losing sucks, right? He talks about losing sucks. He never liked to lose. He didn't want to lose. He was going to do whatever he had to do. But he also talked about how losing can be exciting at the same time. Mm-hmm. And it's back to what Jocko's talking about, about the realization that there's always something you can do to improve, to get better, to grow, and that losing or struggle, adversity, difficulty, whatever it is, is when those opportunities are presented. Yeah. And so even it was interesting hearing Kobe say out of his mouth, losing is exciting. Like that presents an opportunity to grow that you wouldn't have otherwise because success, the win, achievement are going to cover up a multitude of sins. Sure. And you're never going to grow because, oh, it was good enough on that day. So I figured it out and we got the win. Well, over time, that becomes a growing problem. Sure. And that only a loss or dealing with difficulty can present that opportunity in that moment to say, no, I got to get better. And I just true. love that. That was just this morning, yeah. Kobe, you know, Kobe Bryant this morning, how yeah. it impacted me. Mm-hmm. I pass those lessons on to my players yeah, today. For sure. Who else uh, really rocked your world while you were there? I mean, that's like the that's the, the creme de la creme yeah. lineup right there. Yeah, but there was a lot of other other people that spoke. Yeah, I loved I loved Dude Perfect. Um, and if you know who Dude Perfect is, if you have young kids like me, uh, obviously you know who Dude Perfect is. Um, you know they've become a YouTube sensation. They basically have taken the idea around having fun and creating uh, memories like trick shots and fun sport activities. And building a brand around it, you know, to where it's a huge conglomerate and a multi-multi-million dollar business every year. But watching this group of of guys, and two things struck out when when I think about them is how, you know, you always hear the old adage, you, you can't really work with friends and family, how they're bucking that thought process. They're best of friends. They all have unique gifts, and they talk about uh, what each of uh, them bring to the table to make the group better. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just really cool to watch a group of buddies that now have a business where they know when it's, they can joke around, but they clearly know when it's time to, to get serious yeah. and get the job done. Mm-hmm. And it, you can do that. You can have that, that balance. And then two is the creativity gene. Um, you know, just how do they come up with the ideas? How do they execute? How do they get the TV angles? You know, how do they deliver it to the end user, you know, with graphics and packaging and they're doing stuff from an innovation standpoint. They're really nobody's ever done before. So there's no model. So they're creating it as they go. And every day they got to wake up and they're, they're having to be creative. And I thought that was just beautiful. So the relational aspects they had and, the way that they express creativity yeah. in their craft was really, really cool. And that really resonates with you because you have your own little world yeah, of trick shots. I know. And, and so the, I'm sure that that played a, that was a, probably a very impactful moment yeah. to you because they are kind of like the, they're the spearheads of something that you love to do as well. Yeah. I would have never done all of those shots that I've done or all those experiences at camps or with my family or with anybody that's interacted with those videos, if it wouldn't have been for them, first of all, because there was no, nobody was doing that. 
I mean, the only reason I did it in the first place where my sons were fans of Dude Perfect, we have a pool in our backyard. Dad, do you think you can throw that ball like Dude Perfect in the basket? I don't know. Let's do it. We did it. Hey, Dad, can I video you doing that shot that you just made, and we'll send it to our grandparents? Great. Let's do it. That's where it literally started, but it started with them watching Dude Perfect. Yeah. But then second, back to your point, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but people have no idea, like, I know it sounds so silly because we're talking about trick shots to come up with those ideas and to do it in front of 200 kids in a gym. Like that's not an easy task. And Oh, by the way, you can have the idea, but guess what? You got to go make the shot or you look like a complete idiot. Yeah. And you got to be willing to look like an idiot. You got to be willing to look like an idiot. You got to come up with the idea, be willing to deal with a, a lot of failure in front of people and be confident in your own convictions that that I'm doing the right thing. And then three, believe that the outcome is going to be different on the next shot. The next shot's going in. Not even a question. Oh, I missed. Okay, what did I learn from it? Make the next one. Doing it over and over again. Yeah, next shot mentality. Man, that's such a power. We talk about it a lot on Elevated, but the ability to forget. Short-term memory. Short-term memory. That's a very powerful tool to be excellent at anything Mm -hmm. because we're imperfect everybody's imperfect but to be able to move past it self-forgiveness yep something i've talked about that i'm heavily in working on in my own life is i'm you know not many people have to come down on me because i've already come down on myself so hard that it's unbelievable um so that's a really important thing for people to take take home with them is you know there's a lot that goes into doing a lot of things, but failure is a part of every success. Yep. And we'd miss all the failure while we're watching the NBA championship or the World Series or the Super Bowl. We don't we, there's plenty of failure going on at the oh, exact yeah. same time, but when when they hold the the trophy, it, you kind of forget how hard it was to get to that moment That's right. as a spectator. Right. And most people always they talk about you have no idea how hard I worked to get to this right. point. That's right. And like how many times I've failed. Yeah. And that's so so true because we never see, while we're living it and watching it live, we catch the highlights of the game. We maybe catch an old highlight of them in their previous, whether it be high school or college or on another team. You know, the the, the build up to your greatness, yeah. but they don't really hardly ever document the pain and the struggle. That yeah, because when we see people at those levels, you just you automatically assume they had it easy. Mm-hmm. You know, they had it easy. They, they're they not dealing with what I'm dealing with to try to get to that point, you know, mm-hmm. whatever that may be. Yeah. Oh, they, they had it easy. Well, no, you have no idea what has gone on, Yeah. Um, you know, with, with nobody in the gym or nobody on the course or nobody in the weight room or the day that I didn't go out to the party because it was the right thing to do. Whatever it was, whatever that looked like. They were making sacrifices yeah. on sacrifices on sacrifices that you just have no idea. Um, but they make it look so easy, too. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. The commitment of the sacrifice. Mm. Love that. Now that, now that right there, mm-hmm. those are three big words right That's there. good. Commitment to the sacrifice. Because mm-hmm. like, how many times have you had to throw the full court shot until you made it? <laughs> you know? Yes. We're going to start this process. We're not We're not bailing until I make this shot. Yep. And by the way, I've never not made one. Ever. Oh, so when you're recording, you did it until I you I have could. never not made a shot. That's awesome. 
So to, back to your point yeah. about like we're going to stay here till I'm age. just stubborn enough to keep doing it. Yeah. How about the one that you made on your first toss over the house? That was incredible. That was my first <laughs> shot. That's that, well, that's what I challenged Do Perfect with. I was like, you guys, you know, you'll set up a weekend and it'll take them all weekend with nobody in attendance because it, you know, to them. If they do it like in in an arena, like they did some tricks in the arena that day with with like you know some of the personality types, it was more of a safe, guaranteed result, right? Mm-hmm. That could happen really quickly. Like you know, this football has a needle on the end of it, and there's some balloons, and we're racing to see who can pop the balloons faster, you know, than each other, that yeah. kind of thing. But like some of those difficult ones. There's no way on earth they would have an audience for that. Oh goodness! It, it takes them days to to get that a, a ball to go through a basket, <laughs> and it takes me. You know, I'll do it at a break at a Nike camp. I mean, just I. I there's no trick photography to it. There's, yeah. no, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna do it in front of the kids. I don't want to do it in a gym by myself. Like that's yeah. no fun. Yeah. Who wants to do that? But I bet the energy when you do it is so oh, cool. Oh, man. It just, the it, kids are so great. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It don't matter boy or girl. When that ball goes through the basket, in that moment, it doesn't matter who you are. You lose your mind. Yeah. That's so great. You can't believe you just saw it. You know, it's yeah. like one of those things like, I can't believe I just witnessed that happening. <laughs> That's so great. I love it. Who else? Uh, who well, else? Spoke I, I think uh, Greg Rochelle, who leads one of the largest churches in the, in America out mm-hmm. of Tulsa, Oklahoma. And there was just one part of what he, he talked about leading through the dip. That was the title of his presentation, which obviously coming out of COVID, he was talking about leading through the dip. So they've had attendance and membership, you know, dip. And mm-hmm. so what does that mean? And how do you lead through, you know, times in your corporate life cycle where there's going to be struggle. There's going to be times when it's not going great. Yeah. And I thought he, he made one comment that was so profound to me. And I just thought it resonated with me. And he said, and there was four big thoughts he had, you know, change the way you think about change was one. Um, the other, and I'll get back to the one that had the most profound obsess over the why in moments of struggle. Like, why are we, you know, obviously the Simon Sinek of why, yeah. what's the for what in all of this. Uh, lead with confident uncertainty, which I love that. But the thing that that really stood out to me was have the courage to unmake promises that you have made with yourself. Wow. Um, and so what he was saying is sometimes in our life, the boldest declarations or promises we have made could also be our biggest limiting factors. Isn't and we have to truth? have the courage to unmake some of those promises that we've made or had a contract with ourselves. We got to be willing to undo that because when an old mindset is limiting your future, you must have the courage to unmake that promise. That is powerful. Right I thought, there. I thought it was, wow. it was one of the neatest things I'd heard. And so he used this as an example and you'll love this. So in 1886 national geographic came onto the scene and I don't know about you Virgil, but like I can still remember stacks of national geographic in my grandparents' house, oh, yeah, you know, the, the yellow borders and they would save them, um, you know, and they had the national geographic. Well, National Geographic in 1886, uh, as they went through their corporate life cycle, became the most circulated publication in the world in terms of magazine, you know, like subscription magazine. Well, obviously, we know the newspaper and the magazine industry have really taken a dip. 
And so what National Geographic had to do, they said, we're hell bent. We're going to be a magazine. We have great photography. This is what we do. And we're not changing our model. Um, but somewhere along the way, their, their executives and their visionaries uh, unmade that promise and uh, went this whole digital direction, uh, really utilized social media and the power that social media could, yeah. could present. And now they have 162 million followers on Instagram. Wow. And so just showing the progression of unmaking a promise and what that could also present on the other side of it. There's a lot to be learned there, Drew, because, you know, greatness comes in a package of heavy conviction. Mm. You know, you're convicted to whatever it is that you're doing. That's right. And you'll make, I guarantee you, this is really big for me because, my goodness, some of my biggest issues uh, that I'm facing in life are are basically having to work on undoing promises, yeah. you know, of the past, yeah. you know, because you make these statements, you're convicted as heck about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. But you're, you know, some of them you make when you're 14, some of them you make when you're 25, yeah. some of them you make when you're 30, but man, when you get older... The world changes, you change, everything changes, and all of a sudden that statement is no longer relevant. That's right. But yet, because you put it out there, maybe maybe God's not going to forgive me for, you know, undoing my promise. Like I think there's a lot of spirituality in that. Oh, absolutely. In that in that absolutely. phrase right there, because a lot of people forget that one of the the great uh, founding principles of Christianity and Jesus is forgiveness. Yes. You know, I mean, there's plenty, obviously, plenty in the Bible that describes the harshness of God, mm. but also we tend to forget the forgiveness piece. Yeah, you, we talk about the justice piece, but you forget the grace side. Yeah, of of what forgiveness can present. Yeah, and the, and most people are afraid to take back their promises. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Because they are afraid to not be forgiven yep. because they changed their mind or evolved out of that yep. place. I know so I, can be, I can be guilty of that for sure. Yeah. I think it's a it's a stumbling block for everybody. I don't I don't think anybody's no, exempt from that. I agree. That's just that's what makes going to some of these this like yeah. a, a leadership convention. Yeah. All you need is one yeah. thing, and it's worth it. Yeah. When, you, when you get that group of people, you got a bunch of things. Man, your your cup and your plate is full for an extended period of time, which is the whole point of yeah. doing something as grandiose and as amazing as Ramsey does. What's your what's your final takeaway on the learning of leadership and situations like that? And what would you encourage others to consider when it comes to putting something like this into their life? Yeah, I back to the top. Um, if you're not growing. You're dying. Mm-hmm. Um, I think absolute part of our responsibility to my neighbor, to my friend, to my family is to continue to seek ways to grow. This was a force in my life that allowed me to to ask questions. I even journaled questions at the end of each speaker, just mm-hmm. of what I needed to do a self evaluation of myself as a dad, as a husband, as a coworker, as a basketball coach, mm-hmm. as a citizen, as a community member at my church, you know, what does that really look like and how can I apply, you know, what I'm learning from this person or during this time and, and then center it to what can that provide as change and growth for me? Mm-hmm. 
And I'm, you know me, like, even when I get in my car right now, like, I'm going to go put on the TED Talk you talked about. Like, I, I'm always thirsty to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, not for the reward, but for the responsibility of what that can do for the next person I get to interact with. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in closing, you know, this year has been a very unique year. Um, obviously, with COVID, it was it had multiple layers of issues for our sports, and it had m- multiple negative impacts on your your financial world and your camps. And then you had a great basketball team, but it didn't win the state championships. Mm-hmm. You had lots of awesome processes that didn't come with a, the the end goal in mind. So as you head toward the next version uh, this upcoming year that you're getting ready to take into you know a school year starts yeah. right, like like right about now <laughs> yeah. you know what are you what are you trying to implement and put into uh your life yeah. not, not so much necessarily like as in like coaching or yeah, what it is no, you're no, doing no. at school but like you it's been a it's been a very yeah. tough ride for everybody in the last yeah. 15 months we're kind of coming out of it now thank goodness uh what are you what are you gonna what's your, what's your take for 2021 22 i'm still here yeah. I'm still standing. I'm still breathing. I still got something to offer, even in the midst of all that adversity. And yeah, we did lose in the state final and all your greatest fears could come true. But I still woke up today. Mm-hmm. I still have an opportunity today. I still have a chance for impact today. And what does that look like? And what could I learn from those series of events in order to harness and to leverage into my today and making my today the best for me that I can possibly make it. But more importantly, how does that become the best for everybody I get to have relationship with? Yeah, 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, it's the process has to be more than the result because of the journey. It's actually all the, the steps that you take to the end destination that you remember, not the end destination. Right. And to be able to recognize through the struggle that you've, you followed your process and the, the, the losses help you refine it for the, it's, you know, iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. Life sharpens us because we're trying to do our best every day. Yep. And we, we go about it in a, in a good way, but that doesn't guarantee success. No way. It just gives you the highest percentage mm-hmm. chance. Mm-hmm. And of all the things I try, there's no guarantees. Everybody's looking for a guarantee. I want to know that if I do this, there's no way that I'm, there is no such thing as no fail. It's a, it's a process that yep. gives you the greatest opportunity to succeed. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's all that we have. And to be able to grow from, applying your best effort and it not coming out the way you hoped it would. It's a painful moment, but it's also all that growth that comes with it. Mm-hmm. And it makes the greatness that you do end up having taste so much better. That's right. Because it nothing comes easy. And for every LeBron James who of course LeBron's the greatest. Look at that body. My <laughs> goodness. How can you stop that guy? There's been so many bodies like that that didn't want to work hard enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, think about it. He's won four titles now. He's won two at the Heat, one with the Cavs, one with the Lakers. Yeah, four. But he's lost six. Yeah. You know, so, you know, in some ways, 
he's always he's always fighting that battle that you can never win, which is is he the greatest basketball player of all time? I mean, what I mean, whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, we can talk Jordan, Kobe, Oscar Robertson, Kareem, you know, Bird. You know, there's so many people mm-hmm. that could stake their claim. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, we shouldn't be trying to figure out who's the greatest. Is what did they all do in common? Mm-hmm. Mm. What did they all do in common? Because that's what is the real gold. Mm-hmm. The gold is not six eight two sixty and runs a four four. You know, that's that's God's blessing. Mm-hmm. But what did he do with it? He worked harder than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan. What did Michael do? Michael worked harder than anybody else, and yep. he he never asked anybody to do anything that he wasn't already doing. He led by example. Mm-hmm. You know, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, they do things that are. I mean, and, and they're still like, and Tom Brady's still doing it. It's like, it's unbelievable. We're in the midst of watching some of the greatest athletic achievements occurring to old people. We have Tom Brady winning the Super Bowl at what, 44? We have Phil Mickelson winning the PGA Championship at age 50. We got LeBron at age 36 looking like he's 26. <laughs> we got Serena Williams constantly having a chance to win another major championship on the tennis court. And she's got to be 35 or 36 years old and nearly died while giving birth to her child. For crying out loud, <laughs> we are living in an age where people and their processes and how well they take care of their mind and their body and their spirituality. People are doing it longer and better. And yes, there's technology and information that's out there that's helping us do that. But at the end of the day, all that they're doing is that they're using the great gifts that our current time allow us to have with the old style, old school work ethic that they're able to learn faster than they've ever learned. Thank goodness. We've got mm-hmm. tons of technology. We have n- information that is better on how we t- to better recover from exertion, how to better train so that you can push yourself farther, how to eat better, how to sleep better, how to train better. Also that at age 50, Phil Mickelson, almost 51 years old, Phil Mickelson can win a major championship and probably even more remarkably, Tom Brady could be as old as dirt and lead Tampa Bay to a Super Bowl and look just as good as he did 20 years before winning a Super Bowl. It's utterly profound what's going on out there. Crazy. And we get a chance to watch. And what is it? It is not their gifts. It's their work ethic. Mm. And that's what we love to share is that at the end of the day, what's your work ethic, Mm -hmm. what's your process and how can you use your gifts with those proper work ethics to achieve the greatest version of yourself? Because at the end of the day, you should be only trying to compare yourself to you yesterday. Exactly. I should not be trying to compare myself to Drew Maddox and Drew Maddox should not be trying to compare himself to me. I should be trying to compare myself to me yesterday. Am I better than I was? 1% better. Atomic habits. Mm. Just be 1% better. Man, I'm telling you, my uh, my life is better with you in it, Drew. No, I can't, you're I can't, kind. I can't. This, this whole, you you just, you know, you get to be a part of, of stuff every once in a while, and you wish you could bottle it up and just 
take it around with you because you're better when mm-hmm. you're when you're with that moment or with that person. And that's how I feel when I'm with you. Like I'm just better uh, every time we're together. I'm better. Well, and so thank you for your friendship and thank you for being on this journey with me and thank you for challenging me and encouraging me to be better in every facet that that I get to live my days. Well, it's been it's been a fun journey. So we got uh, like as I said, we're getting our books to edit one last time here. We have any time within the next ten days. Oh, we buddy, be, come on, let's next, go. Uh, the next book we'll, we'll do a fast edit and it should be ready to hit Amazon. I would probably say in the the second third of June, and I'm so excited to uh, to share our our story. But so, so you will, obviously there'll be plenty of things on our social media platforms that we do together that will let everybody know when it's going to be arriving. But the the whole the whole thing that we've done kind of reminds me of the Celestine Prophecy. There's, it's a great book by James Redfield, and it's just basically you'd never meet anybody without there being a reason for you to meet them. Mm. And I literally show up late to a Christmas party, and the only seat left <laughs> is beside you. Mm. That's the Celestine Prophecy. Mm. I was there with, there was many of those people that were there were my clients and friends and I'd never met you mm. and I actually don't remember speaking to anybody else other than you as soon as I sat down <laughs> and that is um, that's a great book for people to read because it just helps you understand that when you're when you're sitting on the plane ride everybody likes to hide behind their earphones now but you never know why that person just sat there right that's beside right. you and I always try to get a chance to know the person I'm sitting beside no matter what I'm doing so Take that for what it's worth, but uh, thank you for uh, coming on and, and sharing your your stories on leadership and that great event that you just went to, and thanks for sharing your, your life with, with me and as we move from Elevated to Excavated and the podcast and the books, and hopefully we get a chance to do this public speaking stuff that yeah. we were that COVID so rudely shut down. <laughs> uh, let's see what we can do. But thank yeah. you so much for well, coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I was honored that you would ask me again to be your fourth. Oh, man. We're number two. We're going for the trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> Cure is focused on providing natural alternatives to aid with current or previous medical conditions. Cure does this by providing therapeutic properties of natural cannabinoid formulations for multiple uses, whether internally or externally. Ask your physical therapist or your primary care physician if cannabinoids are right for you, or check out their website www.curemich.com Cure Cannabis used for research and education On the Verge is produced by Chase Akers If you've enjoyed the show leave a 5 star rating and write a review Click subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode